this morning, um, whenever I fill in, I, I try to think of simple topical things that I feel are good to review, good to remind us of the calling that we have in Christ Jesus. And so this morning, with it already being uh, the end of October, which to me is just unbelievable that we're already almost at the end, um, I wanted to speak on eldership. We, as a church, every year we review and ask for candidates of eldership. And so this is an important process for the church, not just our current elders. And so we as the elders want to remind the church of the reasons for uh, eldership selection and to encourage you to A, yourself pursue eldership, or B, nominate someone you think that would be a good elder for our church. And so we want to be a church that grows through this way. Um, I think certainly God directed our steps in finding Colin, um, and, and I am certainly grateful that he is here. And I have no doubt in my mind he would agree with this statement I'm about to say, but God forbid if he ever left, we would want to be a church that raised up our next preaching elder from uh, among our ranks and not from an outsider. Not because we don't think God works that way. We certainly do, obviously, with Colin. But because we want to be faithful in raising up men who are able to stand rightly in the pulpit and rightly in theology. And so that is one of the goals of our church. That's one of the goals of our eldership board um, is to see elders who can be in that position for our church. And so today we're going to look at those qualifications of elders. And we're also going to look at why we need a multitude of elders. Why it's important to think about having multiple elders in your church. Um, our church is certainly a smaller church. Why do we have so many elders if you do... Um, Elder per person, right? We outnumber some of the larger churches in this town by several elders in terms of you look at the numbers of elder ratio to the members of the church. So it's something we want to look at. It's something that we want to think about in that regard. Um, before I move on too far, I just want to say that um, today is also the last Sunday of October. I am not sure preaching elder, that would be Colin Brooks, and it is Pastor Appreciation Month. So um, if you would like to consider giving him a letter or something like of that nature, I know it would be uh, highly appreciated. Um, if you ask me the most important thing that I have from my ministry in Las Vegas, New Mexico, it would be a book filled with personal letters that people wrote me about the impact I had on them. And that is to me the most important thing I have. So. Um, a great t-shirt and a great mug or something like that is certainly appreciated, but I don't think you need to do that either. I think simply just a letter of the gratitude that you have for him and his wife and Matthew uh, in your life is certainly more than adequate um, in that regard. So just a friendly reminder while they're not here that it is the last month of um, past appreciation. So before we get into the text, I'd like to take us in prayer before God. Father, we thank you for your holy word. I do pray that this morning as we go through this word, that it would be your voice that comes through, your truth that resonates, and that my voice would fade away, and that we would become closer together in the body of Christ for our love for one another and our love for you. It's your name we pray. Amen. So as I said just a little bit, we talked about this notion of 
It's a need in our churches. And I think it's a need that stems from the Great Commission. As we see Jesus command the apostles, go out and make disciples of all men. Right? That is the root of Christianity. We make disciples. We make people who are discipling their lives to Jesus. They abide in his holy word. They abide in his spirit for their entire life. That is the goal of the church, is to make disciples of Jesus. And so an extension of that that we see clarified certainly later in the New Testament is the need for the church to raise up elders. So certainly we disciple all members of the church, but the church also has a unique calling to raise up elders, to shepherd the flock of God. And so it's something that we are called to do in the primary command of the Great Commission, but something we're called to do in the commission to the churches of Christ Jesus is to raise up elders and deacons, particularly in those commands. And so when we look at our church, we, we realize it is much better to have a multitude of elders of multiple ages and multiple backgrounds, in the case of our church, because it helps protect all of us from bad doctrine. I'm constantly amazed when I read through the letters of Paul how often he says, as soon as I leave, wolves are going to come in your midst. And so, so often I think we live this life of blissful ignorance where we think that can't happen here. That'll happen in another church, right? That'll happen somewhere else, but we won't have wolves enter our, our midst. We certainly won't let them preach from the pulpit. But that's not how Paul treats the issue, right? Paul constantly says throughout his letters in 1 Corinthians to the Ephesians, Galatians, and certainly to Timothy and young Titus, he says, beware of false teachers, beware of false prophets, beware of the wolves that are coming in to ravage the flock of God. And so as a church, we need sound doctrine. Number one is our guide through the Bible. But we need a multitude of elders to see through these wicked deceptions of men. I'll be the first to admit, I am a very young man, and Colin's younger than me. I love that our board has older gentlemen on it. And so this morning, as I stand here and ask for you to consider being an elder or considering to nominate someone, please do not hear me say we want young men. I'm not saying we don't, but I'm certainly saying we want older men on our boards because we need the wisdom that God has given older men to lead and guide the church. As we know, young men and young people are often caught up in new political ideas, new religious movements, new trends. It takes the wisdom of those who have been before to root us in not being swept away. And so I encourage men who are older to think about becoming an elder if you meet the qualifications. Um, it's certainly something that I benefit from personally, and it's something that my family benefits from, and it's something the church benefits from. So please do not hear me this morning calling elders to be young men. Um, I think we need every generation represented at the eldership table, so to speak, um, to make sure that we're effective in our ministry to the church. But I want to read a couple of places where we are warned of what's coming and what elders are defending against. So turn with me. First to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 3 through 7. First Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7.
So here you have your intro to the book of Timothy where Paul is writing Timothy. And he says something that's pretty interesting in those first opening lines to Timothy. He says in verse 3, As I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the ministration of God, which is by faith. But it is of our goal that instruction in love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. It sounds like at the very beginning, Timothy has an opportunity to leave Ephesus. Um, but Paul says, remain on, even though there's clear trials in your midst, even though there's men, it appears, who are not good. Um, and so we want to notice that this is, one of the ur- this is one of the commands that Paul gives to Timothy, a young preacher. And it's a reminder to us as the church that there are men who are looking to come in and stir up false teaching, right? It says in the... NSAB, it says strange doctrines. Another way that it might read in your Bible or another way to understand strange is divergent. Things that divert from the truth, right? And we see that in verse 4. That these men are not furthering the ministration of God, which is by faith. They have left faith alone, right, through God alone, through Christ alone, and have gone into a works-based salvation. They've gone into something that is speculative, something that is not the gospel. And that is something that we want to avoid as a church. So one of the things that we have to recognize as a church is that these things are waiting to come in if we are not actively protecting what doctrine we hold to, who is speaking, and what we as a collective, not just the elders, but what we as a collective believe. And so it's waiting there for us. Turn with me just a couple pages over to Titus. And we're going to read... His warning that he gives Titus, another pastor, about these same men. So in 1 Titus 1, 9 through 11, it says that he, holding fast to the faithful word, which is accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. He's referring to what are the elder qualifications for a man. In a church of God. Verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sword gain. So again, Paul is telling Timothy, or Titus, excuse me, these men are coming into the church. These men are there and they're waiting. Again, it's, I think it's real easy in 2021 to simply say all those guys are on YouTube, all those guys are on Facebook, all those guys are on TV. They're not in our church, right? They go to that other church. They don't come here. While I certainly think that's true, if we simply live by that rule, though, the wolves come in unnoticed. And so we have to be a church who is vigilant. The elders have to be defending against such men because they want to come in. They want to make for themselves a name among the church and they want to get rich they want to get power they want to get the things that they need and there's damage being caused right look at verse 11 whole families are being upset whole families are being destroyed um it's a couple years old now but i think of ravi zacharias ministries and and what a profound impact he had on my life 
and so many people. And when that truth came out, it was a bombshell. It was destroying whole families. Unfortunately, I, I would imagine there's several people that ended up leaving the faith once they realized what a fraud and charlatan he was. And so we see these are real-world implications that Paul is writing to Timothy about when he's reminding Titus to stand firm against. Is these serious issues that arise within the church body in our midst? And I'm just going to read to you first, or excuse me, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. You may turn there if you'd like. But read to us just again to reemphasize what Paul is saying is coming to churches if we're not vigilant. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will arise. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they denied its power. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That is a heavy list of, of men who would like to come into our church. And, I, and it makes me think about the fact that we are called to protect those in weak situations. I was listening on the way, I went to Albuquerque on Friday and on the way home yesterday, I was listening to a podcast that was talking about a, a famous faith healer from Florida and how it turned out he was preying on women at his revival um, charismatic events that were having marital problems. He would intentionally single out women who were in marital trouble and then he would build a relationship and work his way into a relationship with these women. And so these kind of men exist and these kind of men are promoted. Their books are um, sold in bookstores and we buy them. And so we want to remind ourselves that we're called to something as a church to be vigilant. And one of the first lines of defense we have is a multitude of elders who are wise enough to see these situations arise, wise enough to help us in those times as we look to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ in the church. And so as we see this wickedness abound, the Bible doesn't simply live us holding on to a life preserver, right? It actually gives us more than that. We are told that we are to fight uh, with the armor of God. We are told that we are able to resist such men, we're able to discern and remove them from our midst. So it's not that we are simply helpless in this battle. And so with that being in mind, I want to go ahead and read through our main topic this morning, our main passage of scripture, excuse me, which is 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is the description of an elder. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnaciousness, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those 
<clears throat> outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. We see here the list of qualifications given for an elder, but the verse, first verse in chapter 3 is my favorite. If any man aspires the office of overseer, it flies directly in the face of what we expect from a, from a pastor. So think about if we were calling a new pastor, what's one of the first questions we usually ask a candidate? We usually ask, how were you called into ministry? Right? Certain organizations, certain things we desire. We want supernatural men called into this position. We expect men to have a story of how they became a pastor. <coughs> we want them to say, I was praying on my porch one day and a light shone down and I felt the voice of God tell me, go be a pastor. We love those stories. We, we, we want those stories in our pastors. But be careful, that's not what scripture tells us. If any man, even the guy who doesn't have a revelation, yep. The guy that doesn't have a supernatural feeling on his heart, yep. That guy as well is called to be a pastor. And I think there's a reason for this. I just don't think it's simply put there by accident. I think it's because God knows that we tend to value experience as our first priority. So think about this. I don't know if you've ever dealt with Mormonism, but for a while there, it was a very challenging question to me when a Mormon would say, I have felt in my soul that this is the truth. I didn't have an answer for a long time growing up how to answer that. I didn't know how to combat that experience. And then you realize and you learn that experience cannot be the ultimate source of truth. It has to actually be the Word of God and aligned with Scripture. And so now, when a Mormon would ever say that to me, I know this is to be true, I felt in my soul, I would simply ask them, but what about the Muslim who feels in their soul that theirs is the truth? Right? They have the same problem when you flip it around on them. Well, how do they answer the Muslim who feels in their soul, this is 100% true? Well, you're going to have to eventually appeal to some source or authority. And so for the Christian, it is actually the Bible. And so we want to be careful that we don't allow men to come in or people say, God told me I need to be on staff here at Redeemer Christian Fellowship. God has directed me to be someone at this church. Ooh, we got to be careful with something like that. Right? And that's why we also, I love that first part because it allows men who we are not really impressed with. There will be men in churches who aren't very impressive, but man, they are God's representative on earth and they are indeed holy. And so it's just a good reminder to us at the very beginning in verse 1 that the office is open to any man who aspires to the position. This is good, right? It's not just limited to those who have had... Um, a great gift of speaking or charisma. It's not gifted to those who simply have had a supernatural experience. So we want to be mindful of that. That it is open to any man who aspires to see the office of overseer. And then we get our list of what an overseer is. Now we don't use overseer obviously in our churches, right? But if you've ever worked through this series, you'll know that in 1 Peter and in Titus, and in different places within Paul's writing, overseer, elder, shepherd, presbyter, right? These are all the same word, or the same meaning, different word, excuse me. And so an elder here applies to overseer. So an elder, seer, a pastor, a presbyter, right, must then be above reproach, the husband and one wife, temperate, 
prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Now notice so far, I've just stopped at two. But how many of those are characteristics and how many of those are skills so far? So read two and three. And you don't have to do like an actual math. But how many, how many of those are skills and how many of those are characteristics? There's only one skill, right, that an that a elder has to have. What is it? Able to teach, right? So we're not going to go there today. But if you were to read the verses 8 through following of 10, you would see the list and qualifications of a deacon. And the skill that's missing from their list is to teach. Deacons are not required to teach. And so we see the one skill here listed. Now, I'm not saying that skill isn't important. Certainly, you have to be able to teach as an elder. But we want to notice that it's not the primary motivation for finding an elder in our churches. You can have someone who teaches and they'd still be bad teaching, but has all the qualifications and is qualified to be an elder. You can have someone who's a great teacher who will blow your mind, but they have none of the characteristics that should make them an elder. And so often in our churches, right, what do we, what do we flip? We flip the one over the many. And so, so often we see people like Ravi Zacharias, or I think of like a Mark Driscoll, or I think of, and there's so many other people we can think of from different generations who had the one gift. Man, they could draw a crowd. They could capture your attention. They could teach like nobody ever, you ever heard before. And then eventually comes out behind the scenes. They had none of these qualities going on. They had none of these characteristics in their life. They should have never been in that position to begin with. And so we just want to notice that. that certainly you have to be able to teach, but your life is more important in terms of how you live it than that one gift of being able to teach. So we just want to notice that, that it's important that how you live your life. Right? And these are pretty straightforward, reasonable things, above reproach, right? There's no one outside who could say, oh, you mean the guy who's constantly down here doing appropriate things? He's your pastor? <coughs> the husband of one wife, right? Um, if you read this in a very wooden sense, you're going to simply just say, that's it, one and done. That's not actually the context which is referring to, right? But he can't be someone who's got multiple wives. He can't be somebody who's infidel, right? He's infidelity. He has to be a man of fidelity. And so certainly I think we can point to the places where widows and people who have uh, been divorced because of sin on the spouse of the other person certainly would qualify. I would see certainly there are people who are unqualified. So without getting in that today, certainly the elders will be able to explain that in detail more. But if you have questions about that particular place, passage, um, please let me know. But just to clarify in a simple summary, which is simple, um, we would say there are certain qualifications of divorce that would be fine, that would not bar men from being elders, and we say there's some that maybe would bar people from being elders. But we just want to note that, that that is not simply a wooden uh, rule of husband and one wife. It's not um, in the sense of just simple reading. It is conferring fidelity versus infidelity. Temperate, prudent, respectable, Hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnaciousness, right? Not a, not a guy that likes to fight. Um, I think sometimes this, we can, we got to be careful with this is in our, our, con, our current generation, there's a lot of keyboard warriors. We got to be careful not to become keyboard warriors as elders, right? But be graceful and gentle. Not that we shy away from truth, but that we certainly go looking for fights online as well as in literal fist in person. Addicted to much wine. Um, again, churches read this differently, right? I come from the SBC tradition. Our original document when I uh, was a member there said that if you had alcohol in the house, 
you could be removed from membership. Um, so certainly you have very stringent rules, and then you have more loose rules within that, but we want to notice that obviously it's somebody that's not addicted, okay? It's not somebody who is dependent on wine, someone who's sober-minded, free from the love of money. And then right here, four, he must be one who manages his household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. This is why another reason I think we need older men on our eldership. Um, my oldest is nine, and I think I can tell you quite a bit about what it's like to parent from eight and under, but you ask me what's the parent nine and above, and I am kind of out of my depth. I'm going to rely heavily on scripture, and I'm going to give you my best estimates, but I can guarantee you there are things I'm going to say to you that you're going to be like, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about because you've never had kids that old, which is fine. That's why we need older elders, right? Men who can answer those questions better than I can. Um, and so we just want to notice that, that that's one of the beauties of the church is God is intentionally made to where we have older people we go to to help with, older people who are wise to help us with the rearing of our children. And so one of the things I love about this is it's starting small for elders and going big, right? If you can't manage your own children, right, they have left the faith and they're under your household still, right? We can have a discussion whether that includes all the way into adulthood, but certainly we're talking about within your household. Um, how can you manage other people, right? If you can't manage the basic relationships, how can you manage the complex, dynamic relationships that aren't in your family? And so we just want to notice that, that it's important that he be someone who can manage his household well. And so just as a warning of caution to myself, this might be a verse that later gets me. So God forbid, right, one of my children in their teenage years becomes ultimately rebellious, I may be disqualified. That's okay in the sense of if it leads to their repentance and I said, right, it's an example of the weightiness, the seriousness of the eternal words of God. And so just to encourage everyone, we want to be a church that supports um, having elders of different ages and different stages along the path to help those of our whole body. Verse 6, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. There's a couple of... Uh, Military people in here, so this analogy goes real with them. Um, for somebody who's not military like me, I can still grasp it, but it's certainly not the same as, as uh, those who have served in the military. But I was listening to a sermon on this passage, and he said, you know, can you imagine going to basic, and they give a basic inductee the general position, right? They haven't even made the rank of private yet, but we're already promoting them to general. The chaos that would bring to the armed services. And so in a lot of ways, we do that with Christianity, unfortunately, though, right? We see somebody who's young, and we want to put them in a position of power because they have, number one, maybe the charisma. And number two, we're trying to keep them in the church, right? We see their talent. We see potentially where this is going to lead. Hey, if we get them in now, imagine where they'll be 10 years from now. Think of the youth minister. Who usually takes over the youth minister role? Who is it usually? It's usually the dude straight out of high school or college, right? No experience. We say, hey, go take this job. Um, I've had many a youth leader who probably shouldn't have been my youth leaders because um, they had no idea what they were doing, right? And so we, we tend to do this in the church. We tend to see value. We tend to see potential. And we say, we're going to honor this, and we're going to push you in a position that you're not ready for. We have to be careful, right? Um, there's a band called Gungor. They're a worship band, and they have written many songs you've probably heard of. Um, they're more, one of their more popular ones is God Makes Beautiful Things um, Out of the Dust, right? It's a, it was a really big popular song several years ago. And he talked about his journey, how when they were teenagers, they got put into a big role within their church. It was a larger church in the SBC. 
And then from there, they got promoted to higher positions and they kept moving up the ladder, moving up the ladder. But along the way, they started to lose their faith, right? And some of that was because immediately they were put into positions where certain truths had been worked through, certain hard doctrines had been reconciled. Um, the doctrine of pain and suffering is a very challenging and real issue for every believer. And so if you've never wrestled through that, it's a dangerous place to be once you get in a position of power and you're asked to teach with solidness on that topic. And so they lost him and his wife, when I say them, him and his wife ultimately left the faith. And they were huge influencers within uh, modern evangelicalism. And so we see this is played out, not just in our, my generation, but in every generation. It's a temptation, right? Paul wrote about it back then because he knew the temptation was going to be to raise people who were not yet ready into positions. Verse 7, And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. I think this goes two ways with our current culture in Christianity today. One is the obvious, he's outside, he's in the community, he's doing all the things he shouldn't be doing, and it's inappropriate, right? So he falls into reproach because of the way he interacts with society outside of the church gathered. I think the other way that we have to be careful is we can, we can simply make the pastor to where he's excluded from society. It's really easy, I think, for a pastor to become excluded from the culture which he lives and works, right? He spends all his time at the church building. He spends all his time with church people. He spends all his time around his family, right? Before long, nobody knows who he is, right? Nobody knows that he's a pastor at a local church. Nobody knows him outside the context of a Sunday morning. Um, this is a dangerous place to be, and it's something I'm personally uh, convicted of in the sense of realizing I want to make sure that people know where I'm a pastor at, right? I want people to know I'm a pastor at Redeemer Christian Fellowship. Um, one of our members asked when we were searching, they graciously asked me, how come you haven't considered um, taking the lead position here at Redeemer? And I said, I, I certainly appreciate that. Um, but for me, it was an issue of I still want to be connected to the society I'm in. I still want to be able to have that worldly connection to bring people in and hear the gospel. And so certainly I don't think that our lead pastor has to have a job outside. But what I'm saying is we want to be careful that we don't create elders who are separated from the world and never have contact with the outside world. And so I think that's an important verse there to remind ourselves of. So if you were to become an elder, or you're thinking of someone who's becoming an elder, are they someone that we could say they have good relations with non-believers? Do they have good workings with those around them who aren't of the faith? These are important things to think through. These are important things which are vital. And so we see here in Timothy this list given of the qualifications in terms of characteristics and certainly the need for teaching. But I want to flip one page or one, two books over to talk about, I think, the other vital important part that we talked just a little bit about and that is regards to theology. So go with me to Titus chapter 1, verse 9. We already read this, and I want to revisit it. So in Titus, it gives as well the qualifications of an elder, characteristics, right? But then it talks about in verse 9, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to exhort in both sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. One of the things an elder has to be is committed to theology. 
It's something that they're good at. It's something that they study. It's something that they like. It's something that they're passionate about. An elder who does not have theology can't be an elder. Right? Theology matters. It actually matters what you believe. It's not just simply enough to say, we don't need to worry about theology. We just simply need to focus on God. It makes no sense. Those are two contradictions, right? If you ask me, when's my wife's birthday? And I say, it doesn't matter. I love her. You'd be like, do you though? Right? Do you love your wife? Like, what is she like? I don't, it doesn't matter. I love her. Right? Facts are tied into love. And so as an elder, we want men who are holding fast to the faithful word. They're teaching that faithful word and they're living in sound doctrine, which is found within the Bible. One of the things I love about our church is we are split in terms of we are Baptist and Presbyterian in that regard. I actually love that fact about us because I think it's an issue that we should not be able to divide over, but it's an issue that we should be able to come together and reach the town of Roswell with. And so I was once Baptist. I'm now Presbyterian. So I want strong Baptists on the board. I don't care if they're Baptists as long as they're convinced in their convictions because that's what we need. We need strong leadership. I don't want guys that are just going to simply mold into what I think they should look like, what theology I think they should agree with. And that's what the Bible is calling leaders to be, that they hold fast to faithful word, right? And then we read, obviously, in verse 10, the why. The why is because if you're not solid in your theology, this is what's going to happen. These results are going to come in. Men are going to come in and destroy the church, right? Empty deceivers and talkers are going to come in. They're going to tear the church apart. And so men have to be committed to their theology. They have to be committed to that which is sound. And we know it's a hard thing because think about what Peter says in uh, chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. He talks about the scriptures, which they twist, right? Because Paul is hard to understand, but they twist the scriptures to their own destruction. We need elders who think and breathe and live in God's word, who want to see truth brought forward and continually built upon within the body of God. These are the things that we require from our elders. And so, in closing, I want us to think here about our current elders. And so, the reason I say that is because we have three elders who are um, older in age, and then we have two elders who are younger in age. I would like to see that balance somehow kept. I'd like to see us add elders and grow. I'd like us to see men of ages, young and old, who are qualified become elders. And so this morning, I want you to sincerely pray this week that you would begin considering who would be a good fit for our board of elders. And one thing I want to I just take a little sidestep here is um, we don't think deacon training becomes elder training. So what I mean by that is this. If you're a deacon or you want to serve as a deacon then become an elder, we think that's good. But we also don't think that deacons are many elders in training, if that makes sense as well. I think there are godly and good men who are called to be deacons for their whole lives because they don't feel the need to be called to teach. They don't feel the need to have that responsibility of teaching in their lives. And so we need deacons as well. But we want to notice as a church, we don't believe that you have to be a deacon first, and then if you are a deacon so long, then you become an elder. We don't believe that. We don't hold to that. So if you know someone who would be a good deacon, and so if you know someone would be a good elder, um, let 
us know. Let one of the elders know. If it's you yourself, please let us know. Um, we Elders certainly talk and pray over who we think would be a good fit. But this is a congregational church that's elder run. So we value your opinion. We value your input because it is vital to our eldership board and who we nominate. And so lastly, I just want to say pray for your elders. Pray for Colin. Pray for Bill and Bill and Marvin and myself. Um, I know a lot of the time these guys deal with stuff that um, is exhausting and requires patience and diligence. And so please pray for them. Um, we're warned that um, many of you should not become elders because it's a stricter judgment. So pray for your elders um, that they would be men who are godly and living out characteristic lives of the cross.